Well, it's good to be here this morning. Or isn't it? Is it good to be here this morning? Good. It's always wonderful to be together with God's people in worship, and we've already been blessed so much, and so I'm excited to share with you from this uh, rather obscure book of the Bible. Who here uh, has read Obadiah in the last year? Be honest. Who here has read the book of Obadiah in the last year? Okay, I, I got a couple of hands. Right on. Good. So we've got at least three or four of you who are current on Obadiah. But for the rest of us, we're going to dive into this this morning. So would you bow with me again and let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that all of your word, uh, every last bit of it, even the stuff that we don't pay very much attention to, is for us and it has a word for us. And so as we uh, look into the book of Obadiah this morning, I pray that you would open uh, our minds to understand, our hearts to receive, and our wills to obey uh, the message you have for us this morning. Uh, I thank you that your word is alive and active and that it's for us right now today. And I pray that we would receive it as such. I ask, Lord, that you would give me boldness and courage to speak this word uh, the way you desire me to. May the words be yours, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, it was just two weeks ago that Leanne and I and the boys traveled to Alberta to visit Leanne's family over the Thanksgiving weekend. So while there, of course, we attended the Thanksgiving worship service at the Rosemary Mennonite Church. That's the church that Leanne grew up in. It's also the church that we were married in. So it feels like our second home in a lot of ways. Now, following the service, we had the opportunity to connect with some old friends. And so, of course, as we are visiting with them, Declan and Theodore, who have literally grown up in church, they made themselves at home. So they were off doing whatever uh, boys do. And uh, they were, of course, into the baby room, the nursery. They found a bunch of toys in there. And so, unbeknownst to us, while we were visiting in the back of the sanctuary following the service, they were out with uh, all of their toy trucks in the foyer of the church, which has a very long wheelchair ramp. And so they were, of course, shooting their trucks down this very long wheelchair ramp, and they were rolling down to the bottom and go get them and do it again. So they were entertaining themselves with this. Now, as is a pastor's custom, after some time of visiting, we found ourselves to be the last ones to leave church. Shocking, I know. But I believe it's in the, the pastor's handbook on page 3 or something like that. The pastor shall be the last one to leave church. So anyways. So we turn out to be the last ones, even though we're visitors, to leave church, visiting with our friends. And so now realizing it's high time to go. And of course, Thanksgiving dinner is waiting. It's time for us to get the boys cleaned up, get the toys cleaned up as quickly as possible so we can make our way. So seeing them in the foyer, I grab a handful of toys and I tell Declan to do the same, and so we pick these toys up, and we carry them into the nursery, where immediately upon entering the nursery, Declan just takes his toys, and instead of going to the shelves and the containers that were on the far side of the room, he just stops in the middle of the floor, and he drops them right there in the middle of the floor. And he then turns to me, and with a look of complete sincerity, he looks me in the eyes, and he says, Somebody else will clean these up. Right, Dad? (laughs) Now, needless to say, I corrected him right on the spot. But that statement has stuck with me, and I've been thinking about it ever since. 
just that already at five years of age, he had this idea of somebody else will do this for me. Somebody else will clean these up. And I've been thinking about this, and I've been thinking about the implications of that statement ever since. And I don't just mean the implications of how messy Declan's bedroom is or our living room from time to time. That's not just what I'm thinking about. I'm thinking about the implications of having that sort of a mindset. That if we have a somebody else mindset with how we live our lives, it permeates every sphere of our lives, from work to church to family to how we respond to the world around us. So let me just ask you this morning as we begin, have you ever looked at something that needed to be done? It was clear it needed to be done. Someone needed to do it. Have you ever looked at something and said either out loud or just in your own head, somebody else will do this? Has anyone ever done that? Be honest, my arm's going up. (laughs) Right? We've, We've all done this at some time or another. We've said things like, somebody else will clean this up. Somebody else can do this, or another variation, I don't have to do this because somebody else will. And as we just admitted, for for really being honest with ourselves, we've all done this at one time or another. So at the outset of this study this morning, I want to be careful to say that there are specific times where the wise thing, and even the right thing, is to let somebody else do something. No one person can nor should attempt to do everything. But having said that, all of us can and should be doing something. God has not called anyone to do nothing. We are all called to do something. And so what I want to focus us in on this morning is that unhealthy attitude where we continually excuse ourselves from the good that God would want us to do or have us do, where we excuse ourselves by saying, somebody else will do that. There is a short yet extremely penetrating verse that's found in the book of James, chapter 4 and verse 17. You've probably heard this verse before. If you want to look it up, feel free to do so. I'll read it for you. James 4, verse 17. This verse challenges me every single time I read it, and today is no exception. Listen to what it says. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, to them it is sin. Feeling convicted yet? It's a convicting verse. It's a challenging verse and it's intended to be. You see, there are two different types of sins. Uh, Theologians will call these the sins of commission and the sins of omission. And we tend to focus on the sins of commission because they're really easy to identify. They're the things like lying, cheating, stealing, adultery, etc. These are the things that are, are things we do. They're actions that we can easily identify, the sins of commission. But the other category, the sins of omission, we don't tend to think about these near as often because quite simply, they are things that didn't happen. They are omitted. They are omissions. These are things that don't happen, but from God's God's perspective, should have happened. One of the best-known examples of a sin of omission 
It comes from the famous parable that Jesus told of the Good Samaritan, where the, the priest and the Levite, they're walking down the road, they're traveling down from Jerusalem to Jericho, they see a man robbed and left for dead, beaten on the side of the road. And what did they do? Well, they didn't do anything. They did nothing. They saw the man, but they just kept right on walking past him on the other side. So looking at this, in one sense, we could say these men were entirely innocent. For they had not robbed the man. They had not beaten the man and left him for dead. They were just innocent bystanders who decided to just mind their own business and pass the man by. And this doesn't read this way in the text. Jesus doesn't use these words, but I don't think it would be stretching the story to say that these men probably justified their actions by telling themselves as they were walking past, somebody else will help this man. Well, as it turns out, they were right. Somebody else did help the man. The good Samaritan comes along. But did Jesus let those first two men off the hook for not doing anything? Well, he didn't. The clear conclusion that we draw from Jesus' parallel is that the neighborly thing to do, the right thing to do from God's perspective and from a fellow man perspective, the right thing is to stop and help. And so when we apply James chapter 4, verse 17 to the situation and the non-actions of the priest and the Levite, because they both knew the good that they ought to have done for that man but didn't, For those men, that was sin. So what it really all boils down to is the question. How responsible does God hold you and I when we are given the opportunity to do good, but don't? How responsible does he hold us for our non-actions? Now, you might not be overly familiar with that tiny book of Obadiah we've been talking about this morning. It's only one chapter long. Uh, 21 verses altogether, but it tackles this exact subject head on. And so before we dig into what Obadiah says, there's a backstory to this that will give us the necessary context to understand this prophecy better. We have to travel all the way back to Genesis chapter 25, where two twin, pardon me, where a, a set of twins is born, and we saw the video of them this morning. They were born to their parents, Isaac and Rebecca. Their names were, of course, Jacob and Esau. And if you know the story, right from the very beginning, these two brothers struggled with one another. In fact, it says they even struggled or contended with each other in the womb. And so even as they're being born, there's this competition. The one sticks its arm out, the string's put on, it pulls it back, the other one's born first. And there's this, right from the very get-go, these two are in competition. They are struggling, contending with each other. This continues to when they're grown. And so even though Esau had the birthright as the oldest son, we saw in the video, Jacob tricked Esau out of that inheritance from his father Isaac. And later on, he tricks him out of the blessing as well. And we know he puts the sheep skin on himself to deceive his father into thinking that, well, it feels like Esau, which begs the question, how hairy really was Esau, right? <laughs> that, that sheep skin was like, yeah, it feels like Esau. That was one hairy man. Nonetheless, all of these things, it it builds this story of this animosity between these two brothers. And we know the story continues to the end where where, uh, Jacob returns 
to his home country and Esau's waiting for him and he's so afraid that his brother's going to exact his revenge. But we know the story that finally the brothers are reconciled, they embrace, and there's a beautiful picture there of this reconciliation between these, these twin brothers. However, even though there's a moment of reconciliation in their story, it appears that this long-standing rivalry and hostility between the two brothers was passed along into the lives of their children and their descendants to follow. Now, Esau's descendants eventually ended up in a little country called Edom. Now, Edom is only 15 miles wide and 70 miles long, directly on the south end of the Dead Sea. Their fortress city, that we know best today by the name of Petra, was one of the seven ancient wonders of the world, and they felt invincible within its rocky crags. Now, on our trip to Israel, we had the opportunity of going into Jordan, which is where uh, Petra is located, the modern-day country of Jordan today. And let me just say, it's spectacular. Um, From strictly an, an archaeological point of view, it was the most incredible thing that we saw on our trip. In fact, I will say it's the most incredible thing I've ever seen in my entire life. And so we've, we took a ton of pictures, and I'm going to show you a glimpse of a couple of those pictures today. And uh, Vic's going to pull those up for you, just to give you a sense of the grandeur of this ancient city of Petra. Now, this is standing today thousands of years later, uh, thousands of years after it was carved. It's referred to today as the Kazne or the Treasury. And they don't actually know that it was used as a treasury, but that just became shorthand for it. But what the, the original inhabitants of the city did, they were in this long canyon, and they would carve these facades out of the canyon walls to make these magnificent structures such as this. This one greets you as you walk down the long canyon, and it's right there at the end of it. You can uh, move on to the next picture. It'll just give you another angle of the same structure. It's just absolutely stunning. And the next slide will give you a sense of the scale of this. There's me standing in front. You can see the height of it. And uh, it's just absolutely breathtaking. The next picture, you can get a little bit more of the the background. And, oh, there's uh, Leanne. She's stealing a kiss on me. There's the camel there. So I'm going to have to have a talk with that camel, I think. But this is just to give you a sense of the grandeur, and the next slide will give you a sense of the scale of this place. It's not just a small city. It is massive. Uh, This picture, I took it from the vantage point of being in one of the caves carved into the cliff wall to kind of frame the picture. And looking outward, this is a a massive canyon floor, and on the other side, you can make out the, uh, the other caves, dwelling places carved out in the rock. So this is literally a fortress city carved out of the rock, and this is the capital city of the nation of Edom. And it is from this position they, they have these impenetrable stronghold that can easily hold off massive armies because there's choke points where a few men can hold off literally thousands. And so they feel entirely protected in their fortress city. Now, from this position, the nation of Edom, we see them through the course of the Old Testament narrative as being a constant thorn in Israel's side. And we read about the hostility between the two nations throughout the Old Testament. Let me just give you a brief overview of some of those mentions in Scripture. 1 Samuel 14, Edom is listed as one of the armies that King Saul fought against when he becomes king of Israel. 
In 2 Samuel chapter 8, we read that again, David subdued Edom when he became king. So we see this constant subduing Edom. They're rising up, a thorn in the side, the kings have to subdue them. In 2 Kings chapter 8, we read that again, Edom revolted against Israel. And then prophet after prophet spoke judgment against Edom. Uh, Here's a, a brief overview of those prophets. Isaiah said that Edom was doomed to judgment in chapter 34. The prophet Jeremiah said that God would bring calamity down upon Edom. Ezekiel said that God would lay their towns to ruin. And Malachi predicted their outright destruction. So it begs the question, what did this country of Edom do to deserve all of this treatment and all of these words of judgment and condemnation? Well, the prophet Obadiah spells it out for us. If you remember your history of the Old Testament, you know that because the Israelites sinned against the Lord repeatedly, and most specifically by repeatedly turning to false idols, God finally had warned them enough, and he was bringing correction, and he was bringing judgment upon them. And the initial way that God does this in a wide-scale way is he allows the Babylonians, headed up by King Nebuchadnezzar, to invade and to kill many of the inhabitants of Israel, And then to take most of the survivors captive and cart them off as slaves to Babylonia. As their final act of domination, they completely destroy Jerusalem. They burn the city. They knock down its walls. And and the insult of all insults was that they raised Solomon's temple to the ground. So this is a, a cataclysmic event for the nation. And so we ask, what did that event have to do with Edom? Well, the key statement in this book of Obadiah comes in verse 11. So if you want to turn there with me this morning, if you have it open in front of you. Let's look at verse 11, because this is the key to unlocking the message of the book of Obadiah. Verse 11. This is what the prophet Obadiah says as the Lord directs him to do. On that day, you stood aloof while strangers carried off his wealth, referring to to Jerusalem. While strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. Now at first glance, it it appears harsh and unfair that the nation of Edom would be accused of being like one of them, them being the Babylonians, the ones who actually attacked and enslaved Israel. Edom had done nothing. They had had not lifted a sword against Israel. They had not knocked down the walls or the city gates. But here is why. In God's eyes, when Edom stood by, aloof, and watched as Jerusalem was besieged and destroyed and did nothing, from God's perspective, they were culpable. Now, culpable is a legal terminology to say that they were, in a sense, an accessory to the crime simply by standing idly by and watching, but doing nothing. I want you to listen to what God says through Obadiah about Edom. In verse 10, they have acted with violence towards their brother, referring to that brother relationship between Esau and Jacob. They have acted with violence. Verse 11, for they stood aloof and did nothing. They didn't lift a finger. Verse 12, they then gloated and rejoiced over their misfortune. 
They gloated over it. They're like not only standing by aloof, but they're saying, ha, Jerusalem's finally getting what's coming to them. So there's this, there's this sense of gloating over their misfortune. Verse 13, they then, even in the aftermath, go and loot whatever goods remained after the Babylonians had left. Verse 14, they not only offered no help, they then even captured and handed over survivors to the Babylonians. And so in verse 15, God declares this to them. The day of the Lord is near for all nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your own head. Then later on in the last half of verse 18, God says to them, The house of Esau will be stubble, and they will set it on fire and consume it. There will be no survivors from the house of Esau. The Lord has spoken. Now I want you to look at this next slide. As, as, we, as we go to this next slide, I want you to get a sense of what has happened. This is the ruins of the great city of Petra. It's still magnificent today, but as you can see, it's long since eroded from the sands of time, neglect, and everything else. So it stands as a testament to what once was, I would say without a doubt, the most spectacular city on the face of the planet. To look at it today and to be filled with awe, I can only imagine what it was like in its heyday. When everything was new, when fountains and everything was green and they, they had an elaborate irrigation system. This was literally the most magnificent city on earth. And I want you to look at this picture of what it's become today as you hear what God said to them. Way back through the prophet Obadiah in verses 2 to 4. See, I will make you small among the nations. You will be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who lived in the clefts of the rocks and make your home on the heights. You who say to yourself, who can bring me down to the ground? For though you soar like the eagle and make your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. And so today these runes, as magnificent as they still appear, are all that remains of Esau and the nation of Edom. And so I ask again, How responsible does God hold you and I when we are given the opportunity to do good, but don't? I want us to see clearly that God held Edom 100% responsible, not for their actions, but for their inactions, in not helping their neighbors in their time of distress. And in the same way that God held them responsible. God holds each one of us individually responsible, not only for what we do, but for what we don't do. In modern psychology, there is something called the bystander effect. Has anyone heard of the bystander effect before? The bystander effect is a phenomenon that refers to cases in which individuals do not offer any means of help to a victim when other people are present. The probability of help is inversely related to the number of bystanders. So basically, the more bystanders that are present, the less likely the person is to be helped. Isn't that crazy? But this is what's known as the bystander effect. And one tragic example of this took place on Memorial Day 2011. That day, a deeply troubled 53-year-old man named Raymond Zach of Almeida, California, walked into the frigid waters off Robert Crown Memorial Beach. 
and he stood neck deep in the frigid water, roughly 150 yards offshore for almost an hour. He was up to here in the water. His foster mother, Dolores Berry, sees him out there. She calls 911 and said that he was trying to drown himself. There are conflicting reports about Raymond's true intentions walking out into the water that day. While the city of Almeida firefighters and the police responded to the 911 call, but upon arriving did not enter the water. The firefighters initially called for United States Coast Guard cutter to respond to the scene, but they were hours away. All the while, the police also arrived on the scene, but they stood by expecting the firefighters to enter the water and rescue the man. The firefighters later said they didn't enter the water because they didn't have the current training and certification to perform land-based water rescue, and that the funding for their program had been cut. However, a memo later surfaced that contradicted the lack of funding claim. Nonetheless, all this time, dozens of civilians begin gathering on the beach or watching from their homes across from the beach. But over this entire span of one hour time, no one entered the water. Everyone was expecting someone else to take charge. The civilians expected the authorities to conduct the rescue. The authorities expected someone else in the chain of command to conduct the rescue. All the while, everyone's expecting somebody else to do it. And all this time, Raymond Zach is standing neck deep in the frigid water. Finally, he is overcome by hypothermia. And he collapses under the water. And even then, nobody entered the water for several minutes. Finally, a regular civilian, realizing that no one was doing anything, runs out into the water. He swims out to him and he pulls Raymond Zach into shore single-handedly. They attempt to resuscitate him, but it was too late. Raymond Zach was announced dead on the scene. The bystander effect. It's a crazy thing, isn't it? There were many bystanders that day, both professional and civilian, who were more than capable of rescuing this man... But don't miss this. They all thought that somebody else would do it. And the man died as a result. I came across this article by a a pastor named Roscoe Lilly. Some of you might be familiar with him. And he wrote this article. He writes, most of us want to do things that leave our our corner of the world better. We hope that because we lived, others can point to things that we've done that are better because of our time on earth. No one says, I just want to be lame my whole life. No, we plan to do good. We plan to change the world for the better. We just forget on the way to work and on the way to soccer practice that altruism gets lost in the busyness and the routines of our lives. All that running around makes us tired and starved for time and cash. So when we actually have an opportunity to do good, to make a difference, we don't have the capacity emotionally, physically, or financially to help. To make ourselves feel better about our inaction, we have to come up with an excuse to justify our inactions. The one that I tell myself most often is, somebody else will do it. Have you ever said that to yourself? You've seen an opportunity to help or serve someone, and you thought, someone else will do it. Someone else will help. I don't need to get involved. Someone else will give. Someone else will volunteer. But every time I use that excuse, I become lame. I move towards selfishness and away from becoming more like Jesus Christ. Now, isn't that what we all want? To be more like Jesus. You know, to use his terminology, we don't want to be lame our whole lives. 
We want to we leave this world better than we found it. We want to become more like Jesus along the way. Isn't that the entire aim of the Christian life? And so let me just say, my friends, we cannot become more like Jesus if we don't actually do the things that Jesus did and told us to do. And all of the excuses we have told others, and especially the ones we tell ourselves, will vanish. They will vaporize the moment we step into Jesus' physical presence one day. You know, I might have said somebody else will do it a hundred times in my life to myself and it helped me sleep at night, but the moment I stand in Jesus' presence physically, I'm not going to utter that word. And even if I try, it's going to fall on the floor dead on arrival. It's not going to stand up to scrutiny when I use those words in, in the Lord's presence. And in Acts chapter 10, verse 38, there's this great summary given of Jesus' life, and I love this line. It says this, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, and he went about doing good. (laughs) Talk about a, a summary of a life to say that Jesus just went about doing good. But that's what he did, and that's what he calls us to. So what are some of the opportunities to do good that you have passed up? Maybe you saw a car with a flat tire on the side of the road and kept driving, and you told yourself somebody else will stop. A new family moves into your neighborhood, and you feel you should stop by and welcome them. Say, welcome to the town, welcome to the neighborhood, but ah, somebody else will do that. An appeal is made to give to a local mission, and you feel prompted to give, but that checkbook stays in your pocket because, well, someone else will give. The church is looking for new Sunday school teachers, and you know you could do that, but, you know, somebody else will. You know your coworker doesn't know Jesus. And he makes comments about religion every once in a while, and you feel like he's getting at something, and you feel like you should ask him about it, initiate a conversation, but eh, somebody else will. And let me just say right now, I realize this is a heavy message. But it is for our benefit and for our ultimate good that we pause from time to time and evaluate our lives, not by our own standards, but by God's. And so today, by the guidance of the Holy Spirit, if you have the courage, if you have the courage, I want you to take a minute today to ask the Lord in a private time of prayer. Ask him this. Lord, is there something good that you want me to do where I have been guilty of saying somebody else will? And if you sense in your spirit or in your mind that the Lord is replying to you that there is something then I want you to know that God is telling you right now, you are the somebody else. You are the somebody else that I want to do this. So instead of saying somebody else will do that, say I will be somebody else today. I will be the one who will do this. And you see, if you desire to be all that God has made you to be, And if you desire to do all that God has planned for you to do in your life, then we have to resolve within ourselves to stop saying somebody else and say, Lord, I will be that somebody else you're looking for. I want to close with these great words from the prophet Isaiah when God called him to be the somebody else, to be the prophet to the nation of Israel. And he says, I'm an unclean man with unclean lips. I could never do the job you're asking me to do. That's a paraphrase. But the Lord says, I have purified you. I will send you out. And then listen to Isaiah's response in verse 8. 
Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am, send me. May each one of us resolve within ourselves to respond as the prophet Isaiah did and say, Lord, here I am, send me. Let's pray together. Father, for your word this morning, we give you thanks. I pray, Lord, that your word would not fall on deaf ears this morning, on hard hearts, but that you would soften our hearts, open our ears to truly hear and receive what you are asking of each one of us. You're not asking us to do everything, Lord, but for what you put before us, the opportunities you present each one of us individually with, you ask us to do something, to be the somebody who will step up and say, here I am, Lord, use me, send me, I will be the one. And so, Lord, I pray that we individually will be honest with you as you evaluate our hearts, our actions, and our inactions, Lord. And I pray that we would be stirred, stirred in our hearts and stirred in our actions to be engaged and involved with the good that you want us to be doing in this world until we see you face to face. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.